Welcome to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly in Southeast Spain. We are here for the purpose of worshipping God and reaching others with love. We pray that as you listen, you will be inspired and challenged in your walk with God. And good morning to you all. Well, we have been looking at uh, Isaiah 53. And I, 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 I truly wish that you have been as blessed with uh, your, the reading of this passage and the study of it as I have. I just really have enjoyed it. Um, we're going to finish this in October, but I'm already thinking, you know, what's next? And you know what I really want to do? I want to stay in the Old Testament and just keep looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. You know, I thought, wow, that would be, that'd be a lot of fun. Um, but I'm not, you know, haven't decided on that. But anyway, right now we're here in Isaiah 53. And um, we have actually said that there are five stanzas to this passage. It begins in 52 verse 13 through 15. And that was the shocking servant of Jehovah. And uh, we dedicated an entire message to that first stanza. The second stanza is verses 1 through 3. And we called it the shameful servant of Jehovah and how it is that Israel looked at him and they were ashamed of him. And then the third stanza, which is verses four through six, and uh, we call that the substitute, the servant substitute or the substitute servant. And, and um, well, how it is that in the Old Testament, there is such a clear teaching of the fact that he died in our place. There are some references uh, to Messiah in the book of Isaiah. Some of them you know, Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, he makes reference uh, to the virgin birth. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. You remember that? In chapter 9, Isaiah identifies the Savior in a number of wonderful ways. The mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the Father of Eternity, the Son who is born to us, upon whose shoulders final and everlasting government will rest then in the second half of the book, that the, the part that sort of gives it this title of the fifth gospel, uh, the second half of the book, is, it's, it's very much directed to the idea with prophecies from chapter 40 to 66 that focus on salvation. Salvation of a nation, salvation of a people, and individual salvation. And uh, um, it is worth taking a walk through that. So there are four passages, chapters that are dedicated to Messiah um, in a very prominent sort of way in this book. They call them servant songs. Some of the theologians have given those passages that title, servant songs, and there are four of them. Uh, chapter 42, chapter 49, and chapter 50, and of course, chapter 53, and in each, Isaiah tells us things about Messiah. For example, in chapter 42, Messiah is introduced under the title, My Servant, Ebed. And we gave a, a lot of study on that. We explained what it means. Uh, Ebed is just a very simple word for slave, one who has no will of uh, his own. Um, and... Um, this servant, uh, this uh, Messiah who is to come, 
will be chosen by God. He will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. He will bring justice, righteousness to the world. He will bring salvation to the world. He will deliver the blind prisoners from their dark dungeons of sin. And in chapter 49, we learn a little more, a little bit more about him. We learn that he will be human and that he will be a man. And, and, and there's even a reference to his, him being born of a virgin in that passage. <coughs> Excuse me. He again... It says, we'll save, he's the one who's going to save Israel and bring salvation to the nation um, and to the world and finally come in glory. And then in chapter 50, it tells us a little more, a little more revelation. He will be humiliated. Introducing that concept that was so Hard for Israel to understand that their Messiah, their great king, would suffer. That was very hard for them to, to perceive. Um, uh, he will be humiliated. Uh, he will suffer humiliation through which he will then learn obedience and ultimately and finally be uh, vindicated. Which brings us to the last servant song which begins in chapter 52. Remember I mentioned to you that you almost have to say that Isaiah 53 begins in chapter 52, verse 13, all the way through, chapter, uh, through verse 12 of chapter 53. And there, of course, um, we, we, he focuses, the prophet focuses on the coming Messiah with the kind of precision detail that can only be known to God. The details that, that Isaiah writes are like, you either have to say and you understand why the, uh, the unbelievers say, there's no way that prophet saw that almost 700 years, 560 plus years before it happened to that detail. So the guy that wrote this had to have seen it. He wrote after the fact. And so in, in um, German higher criticism, they say that there's a, you know, a number of Isaiahs, you know, at least three who wrote. Because they say, how could he have known all those details that far back? Ah, but that is what prophecy is all about. Um, so the reality was given to them long before it ever took place. And Messiah then, who dies as the sacrifice, does it four sins. And those four songs are worth us looking at them. That's why I'm thinking, maybe we should go back and look at each chapter. And then I thought, oh dear, if we do do that, we'll be in Isaiah probably till he returns. But hey, you know, no hurry, no hurry. Uh, this is going to bring us to our first point. So let's pray and ask God to help us understand the new material and just Focus our hearts on this beautiful passage. Father, we love your word. That is why we are here. We could be doing a lot of things, sitting home in the air conditioning. But we choose to be here because we love you and we love your word. And so we ask that your spirit would speak your word into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first statement is a prominent statement. And we need to look at this passage. We're going to be looking at verses, um, Isaiah chapter 53, verses six, uh, 7, 8, and 9. 
that is wishful thinking. I, I get that. But we'll, we'll see how far we get. We'll see. Let's, let's see how far we get. Verse 7. Can we please have verse 7 on the board? It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And here's the prominent statement. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He is a lamb led to the slaughter. In a direct statement, we are told that Messiah will be slaughtered like a lamb, and in that slaughter, he will be silent as a lamb is silent. That's shocking, folks. Easy for us. We look back. But to those who would be reading this prior to, they say, what? And there lies the question to the mind of the Jewish leaders, was this really about Messiah? And to some, it was hard to conceive that their Messiah would be slaughtered like a lamb. So that is the prominent statement in this verse. He is a lamb led to the slaughter. In a direct statement, we are told that Messiah will be slaughtered like a lamb. The imagery is inescapable. As you read through these, just these three verses, well, for the matter, for the whole chapter, the imagery is just inescapable. They are familiar with animal husbandry, so they know what it means. They are, they are participants in sheep husbandry. They know what it means to shear a sheep, to slaughter a sheep. It's very familiar to the Middle East. They kill sheep to eat them, they shear sheep to make their clothes, and they kill a lot of them for sacrifices. You say, what do you mean by a lot of them? Well, to this day, there, are, there, are, there is a culture that continues to slaughter sheep, lambs, um, to, to a high degree. Uh, they kill sheep to eat them, they kill them to, to, uh, to shear them for clothing, and here they are introduced to their Messiah as a lamb who is to be slaughtered. They, they know that what that means. They understand that. Every day there was a sacrifice at the temple. Every day there were animals being sacrificed. And, 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 and on the high holy days, hundreds if not thousands of sheep would die. And on Passover and on Yom Kippur, thousands upon thousands. Someone once said the best way to describe a high priest was to see him as a butcher. Because that's what they did. They just they slaughtered lambs after lamb after lamb after lamb after lamb. And, 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 you know, for us, we, we talk about it, but we really can't quite imagine it. So, I, you know what I did? I brought you a photo. The slaughter, the part of slaughtership is reality. The lamb is in analogy. I have this slide here. You may not be able to see that. It's before, it was sent to me a long time ago by a missionary from Morocco. And you see the red in the photo? That is part of the ocean where the river pours into the ocean. That is blood. That is how many lambs, sheep, are slaughtered on the day of sacrifice. Still, to this day, 
I mean, I could have brought other pictures, but I thought they would be a little too gruesome for you. But that's just to show you, this is, this is the mouth of the river going out into the Mediterranean Sea. And that's what it looks like the day of the, uh, of the big sacrifice, when they, when they kill a lamb. And they do it because of Abraham. To this culture, when they said, when they read that he was to be slaughtered, they know what that means. Verse 7, Messiah will be oppressed, afflicted, but he will be quiet in his slaughter. He will be quiet, he will be silent when he is being slaughtered, the way a sheep is quiet when it is being slaughtered, or silent when it is being sheared. Two times in verse 7, you read, he did not open his mouth. Isaiah looks backward. The verbs are in the past. I have pointed this out, and you've got to understand that. The verbs are in the past. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He did not open his mouth. Looking backward from the future conversion of Israel, when they look upon the one whom they have pierced, as Zechariah 12 says, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. You, you gotta, don't ever forget, when you read Isaiah 53, you're not just reading the future crucifixion of Jesus. No, 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 no. You gotta read it as Israel at the end of time looks back to the crucifixion. That's why it's in the past. Because had he written it for the future only, meaning only as far as the crucifixion, then it wouldn't be past, it would be future. It's not being looked at from a future perspective, it's being looked at from a past perspective. Verse eight, he did it all for the transgression of my people. Look at the bottom of that verse, who considers that he was cut Next, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Why was he slaughtered? The statement, for the transgression of my people. Who's writing? Who's writing? Who? Who? Isaiah. Are you guys here today? Isaiah. Are you of the people of Isaiah? Actually, you're not. Unless you have some Jewish blood, which they say that my family does. I still haven't believed that because I can't find all the facts. That lady back there has Jewish flag, but she's part of that family. When the, when, when the prophet says the transgression of my people, folks, he's not talking about you. Talking about Israel. Applicable to you? Yeah, it can be applicable to you. But he's not writing to you. Oh, that it would be so. But this isn't about you. It's about Israel. Applicable to you and to me. Yeah, it is. But the main characters here are Israel. So it's an amazing prophecy that looks beyond the cross and then back to the cross. 
but it speaks of salvation. The whole passage is about salvation. Your salvation? Again, no. Salvation of Israel. But the language is the language of salvation. See, we are saved. Yes, we are. Because we believe he was pierced for our transgressions, verse 5. We are saved because we believe he was crushed for our iniquities. That the punishment that came on him was for our well-being. And that by his scourging we are healed. We are saved because, in verse 6, we believe that the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. We are saved because in verse 8 it says, because we believe he was cut off for our transgressions. Yes, we believe that. We believe in verse, what it says in verse 10, that the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, so that he would become a guilt offering for our sins. Yes, we believe that. Verse 11, that he justified many by bearing their iniquity. And at the end of verse 12, we believe what it says there, that, it, that he bore the sin of many and interceded for their transgressions. So it's not just their salvation. It's the salvation of anyone who understands, believes, and accepts the truths of this passage. And they told you, just receive Jesus. It's not that. It's, it's not that inexpensive of salvation, folks. It may be free to you to receive, but it cost him everything. You need to read into those words, the sorrow. So to become a Christian, one must believe in the vicarious, substitutionary sacrifice of Christ on our behalf on that cross. But someday, folks, Someday the whole nation of Israel will also believe. And how do you know that? Because I'm reading Isaiah 53. They're the ones that are confessing this. We're just sort of adjunctly joining to it later on. But they're the ones that are actually going to confess these words. We're just sort of reading their mail and saying amen to it. God has a future salvation for Israel. It is written in detail in the scripture. Their salvation is promised in Jeremiah chapter 31. It is promised in Ezekiel 36. It is in Zechariah chapter 12, chapter 13. And it is promised right here in Isaiah 53 as to the very words of their confession. We, it's not just saying, God, it's not just saying, oh, they'll be saved. He's even giving you the words that they will bow to and they will confess and they will cry out when they realize, what have we done? What did we do all that time back? when we crucified a man we thought was just a madman. That was our Messiah? The Apostle Paul reiterates it in Romans chapter 11 when he says, so all 
Israel will be saved. You mean Paul read Isaiah 53? I guess he did, right? I guess he read Isaiah 53, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 30, uh, 36, uh, Zechariah 12, 13. I guess he read his Old Testament once in a while. And he concluded, yeah, they'll be saved. Right now they want to stone me. Right now they want to imprison me. They don't like me talking about Jesus as Messiah, but someday they'll be saved. That must have been comforting thoughts to him as he read his Old Testament. So the picture here is of Messiah being slaughtered, being as, a si as silent as a sheep is silent, and that's that imagery. Sheep are as quiet in slaughter as they are in being sheared. And that's what he's saying. He's, the Messiah will be silent through the whole event. Verse 7 tells us he is quiet. That's what he says. He is quiet. And so we call this message the quiet servant. It was his time. And so he was just quiet through the whole thing. The Old Testament prophet, John, John the Baptist, and I say Old Testament because I know you guys see him in the New Testament. It's true, but really he's an Old Testament prophet. But uh, uh, he, he's, he, he, was in a, he was an amazing man. Uh, what God revealed to this guy was, is incredible. And there weren't many other prophets, of course. Uh, uh, for 400 years, there were no prophets and there were none other around him when he showed up on the scene. In Isaiah chapter 40, it talks about him. Isaiah chapter 40, verses three through five, it says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness saying, make straight the path for the Lord. Malachi wrote in chapter 3 and 4 about the Messiah's final coming and, and that there would be one that would be introducing Messiah. Behold your king. John chapter 1 verse 29. We hear those words of John the Baptist when he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right out of Isaiah 53. How come no one ever told me that? It was right out of Isaiah 53. He is just simply pointing to the lamb that is going to be what? Slaughtered. For you. That's what he's saying to him. He didn't have to explain it. They didn't need, why does he explain it? We didn't have to get up, we're smart, so we get up and we try to explain it all, what he meant when he said, the lamb of God that takes away, and we mess it all up. Because we don't go to Isaiah 53 where it's right there. It's just, it's just amazing. This is just amazing scripture. Right out of Isaiah. The next day, John says it again. Behold the Lamb of God. He just doesn't explain it because he knows his audience understands it. There was enough in Isaiah 53 to understand the Messiah will come as a lamb and as a sacrifice for sin. Want to be slaughtered and that he would be quiet and silent through it. 
May I remind you of verse 6? If we could put up verse 6, I just want you to remember verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's the picture of sinful humanity. We are all sheep gone astray. I'm going to use that analogy for one second. Scripture says, we are all like sheep who have gone astray. And some, God goes and gets and brings them back. We are all sheep who have gone astray. The scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? But then he goes and finds some of those strayed sheep and brings them into his fold. Are we going to blame him for that? No, we, we let ourselves astray. He had no obligation to go looking for us. But he did. That was his choice. And we answered to that call. And that's the picture of sinful humanity. We're all sheep gone astray. So the servant becomes one of us. A lamb, a sheep in order to become a sacrificial lamb to save the sheep. Remember? Substitution. Substitution. That brings us to our second point, which is the fourth stanza. You are in the fourth stanza, verses six, uh, verses seven through nine. Now, we're going to embark upon verses seven through nine in, in this fourth stanza of the five that this passage has. And the chief emphasis in verses seven through nine is silence, quiet. The reaction of the slaughtered lamb. He is quiet, he is silent. He is quiet in his trial, that's verse seven. We're gonna point to that. He is quiet in his death, that's verse eight. And he is quiet in his burial, that's verse nine. I'm gonna point out all that out for you. So the language here is the language of the gospel. It is the language of salvation. What is that language? Love Jesus, receive him in your heart. You know, um, the, the language of salvation is, you know, raise your hand, go up the aisle. Verse 3. Despised, forsaken, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Verse 4, grief, sorrow, stricken, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, punished, scourged. Verse 7, oppressed, afflicted, slaughtered. Verse 8, oppression, judgment, cut off, stricken. Verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. He's a guilt offering. Verse 11 and 12, bearing iniquity, bearing sin. So what are we saying? The gospel is about sin. It's about judgment. It's about atonement. It's about death. It's about sacrifice. It's about blood. It's not about us feeling warm and gushy. Wow. Man, this puts a whole new thing to what we preach. This brings us to our third point, the trial of Jesus. 
That's verse 7. Let's put verse 7 back up again. Verse 7, he was oppressed is the first phrase. He himself, it's, a, 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 it's something that he does to himself. It literally, in the Hebrew, it means he himself emphatically was hard-pressed. Hard-pressed. Um, uh, it's, it's what we call a passive verb that one does to oneself. I'll explain that later. This is a word that takes us to brutality, to abuse. So severe was his treatment when he was arrested and abused that uh, verse 14 of chapter 52, if you can just think back on our test on that uh, passage, because I know you remember, verse 14 of chapter 52 says that his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. He didn't even look human by the time it was done. That's what the prophet says. By the time they were finished with him, both in terms of physical beating that he took on his body, the abuse that he took on his head, on his face, he didn't even look human. When we say that the prominent phrase here is slaughter, we mean it. The abuse started with his arrest in the middle of the night in the garden. Then it continued throughout the mockery of the trial at the house of the high priest trying to indict him by false witnesses. The abuse that came to him there before Herod, before Pilate, the psychological torture that he underwent there and the outrageous injustice of turning him over to the Romans and the way they handled him and abused him physically. No crime ever validated. No proof ever given. No guilt ever established. According to Luke 23, Herod declared him innocent. And three times, three times Pilate said he is innocent. He was the governor. So it was a legal verdict. Three times, legally, he said he is innocent. But the Jewish leaders, with consent from the people, pushed Pilate to follow his triple declaration of innocence of Jesus with a call to execution. And that's what he does in Luke 23, verse 25. Well, that's what's seen here in verse 7. He was oppressed. Get an idea for the word oppressed. The next word, the next phrase in verse 7 is, he was afflicted. Again, a passive verb, as was the first. He allowed himself to be afflicted. That's the way you would translate a passive verb. Passive means the action happens to you, not from you. So it also can come to mean and could fairly be translated like in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 10, verse 3, same phraseology, and this is how it's translated. He humbled himself 
which is another way of saying he allowed himself to be afflicted. Paul may well have had this very phrase in mind when he wrote in Philippians chapter 2. Now think back on Philippians chapter 2, folks. Listen to what it says. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even to death on the cross. And there's your context. That may well be the direct reflection of Isaiah 53.7. So this is not normal reaction from a person that's being tortured. This is not normal for innocent people who are being tortured to act this way. Normally, an oppressed, tortured person who is innocent and knows that he is grossly and justly would what? Cry out. I want justice. He doesn't say a word. Yet, he opened not his mouth. So in spite of the fact that this was all evil, wicked, wretched, injustice against him, not just for an innocent man, but a perfectly holy and righteous man, Scripture says he didn't open his mouth. The cry of the guilty sinner is always for mercy, right? Sinners don't suffer silently. No, we don't. Uh, take a David, for example, in Psalm 32, Psalm 51, when, when he is confronted with his sin, what does he do? He cries out to God, against thee, thee only have I sinned. Wash me, purge me, make me clean. That's the cry of a guilty person. Oh God, help, please forgive me. But what's the cry of an innocent person? Well, we have that in the book of Job, who repeatedly cried out to God about his innocence. Job chapter 7, verse uh, chapter 7 through 13. The whole thing is, it's him saying, God, why is this happening? I'm an innocent man. I'm not guilty of whatever my own friends are uh, uh, accusing me of, uh, of being guilty of. <laughs> so even, a, even an innocent person would cry out to God. Sinners don't suffer silently. When we suffer because of guilt, we cry out to God for forgiveness. And when we suffer for innocence, we cry out to God wanting to know why am I suffering? So when he was brought before that high priest in Matthew chapter 26, it tells us that he was quiet. In the next chapter, chapter 27, he was taken before the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and he was quiet. In Mark 15, he was taken before Pilate, and he was quiet. In John 19, the same, quiet before Pilate. In Luke 23, he was taken before Herod, and again, quiet. He never said a word in defense of himself and his innocence. You see, the issue here is the willingness of Messiah to die. So if you still think that he was a good man cut down in his prime, that this was just an injustice that took place to a good man that should never have died at that moment, we should have heard all his teachings and we should have, you know, he shouldn't have been cut off so soon. 
You still haven't gotten it, have you? He gave his life for you. So this is not a good, uh, this is not a good plan uh, gone wrong. 700 years before he showed up, the prophecy is crystal clear that when he comes, he will come as a lamb for slaughter. Behold the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He must be sacrificed. He must be a sacrificial lamb because only in death of sacrifice is sin removed. It was the silence of submission to the will of the Father. But I want to point out one last thought. It wasn't just the silence of submission to the Father. I say it is the silence of judgment. You wouldn't listen. It's as if Jesus said, you know, you wouldn't listen. And now I have nothing to say. When I did speak about life and salvation, when I did speak about forgiveness, when I did speak about the kingdom of God, you would not listen. And now I have nothing more to say. Verse 7 ends again by saying, so he opened not his mouth. He not only accepted the unrighteous judgment of men, but he accepted the righteous judgment of God on behalf of unrighteous sinners in order to make them righteous. I learned a little phrase a hundred years ago, seems like I've been around for that long, that says this, I love this little saying, it says, the son of God became the son of man in order that the sons of men might become the sons of God. That's why he did it. That's why he was willing to be the slaughtered lamb. No sacrifice was ever so perfect. No sacrifice ever so pure. Here is the sinless, spotless lamb of God, acceptable to God, chosen by God, elected, dying for me. For me. I hope for you. It is here, dear friends, that the Old Testament soteriology reaches its climax. Soteriology is a word, a very, one of those expensive words, that just means the study of salvation. This is, this is, where, this is where salvation in the, in the Old Testament reaches its high peak. This is the high point of the Old Testament. The Messiah is the sacrifice, the slaughtered by God for us. Verse 8 then puts it that he would be cut off out of the land of the living for our transgressions. That's the message of the gospel. A message of sin, judgment, death, sacrifice for you, for me. So what does it mean to believe on Jesus? What does it mean? Does it just mean to believe he... He was, he did. What does it mean to understand? 
He truly was slaughtered in your place. You, me, we should be slaughtered for our sin. Instead, the righteous died for the unrighteous. Just to bring us to God. The suffering, quiet, submissive, slaughtered, scorned servant of Jehovah takes on himself the punishment of God for the enormous moral debt of the elect of all human history and pays the ransom price with his life. That's verse 7. He did it all quietly. Verse 8. Then comes the quietness in his death, in his burial, in verse 9. We'll look at all of that the next time we gather. Just go back, go read those verses again, folks, and bathe in the truth of substitutionary atonement. And when you see who you are in the face of holy God, then your response should be one of gratitude, eternal gratitude, that he would grant you eternal life. I stand as we close in prayer. You know, as we preach to messages like this, it should be almost natural to invite you that if you have not yet made that kind of understanding and you're just now connecting the pieces and you're just now saying to yourself, oh my word, I never understood. And, and that brings some doubt to your heart as to whether or not you truly are saved. Here's my thought to you. You can leave quietly and go deal with it on your own and somehow convince yourself you're still okay. Or you can take advantage that you're here, surrounded by people who love you and care, and say, I, I need to talk to someone. Because folks, Isaiah 53, it's God's love letter to you. That's how much he really loved you. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, Father, that every heart here present today has bowed to the truth of your word, to the truth of this passage, to the truth of the substitutionary death of your son, the Lord Jesus, and what it means. Father, thank you. We love your word, Lord. It fills our heart every time we read it. It challenges us. But I pray that more than that, it would push some to make the proper choice and decision to confess and to receive the sacrifice of Christ for them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly, a ministry of AMG Spain and AMG International. For more information, please visit our website at www.icatorrevieja.org.
This audio file is not copyrighted.